0: Thanks for being out tonight and uh, worshiping God together with us. It's a great encouragement to be together, and I hope the things we talk about tonight are worthwhile and encouraging to you. I wanted to continue our theme in the book of Acts chapter 10. Thank you, Joseph, for that lengthier reading tonight. And uh, I want to look at some things that we can learn there from Acts chapter 10 again tonight. As we examine what the scriptures teach and we try to interpret the scriptures, we need to be very clear on the fact and the foundational concept that there are no contradictions in the scriptures. The scriptures are given to us by God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is given by inspiration, but they were given the word penned by human penmen, but they were given the words to write by God. All, God. all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Greek word for inspiration is theonustos. It's a compound Greek word. Theo being the first part, you recognize that as being God. Neustos, you recognize that. Uh, is a, a root of the word used for pneumatic as in pneumatic tires or pneumatic uh, pressure as referencing air. God breathes is the idea of inspiration. God gave the writers the very words that they were to use as they wrote the scriptures for us. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. And God is as he gave those words, had to give the truth because God cannot lie. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says, "...in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. When God speaks something, it's truth. God gave the words for the writers to use, and whenever God says something, it's truth. John 17, verse 17 then says, "...sanctify them by your truth." Your word is truth. And so if God's word is truth, then it can't have any contradictions. For example, God's word couldn't say 2 plus 2 is 4 on one page, and then flip over a few pages, it says 2 plus 2 is 3. That wouldn't be in harmony with God's nature, would it? Because God can't lie. God's word is truth. Therefore, there can't be any contradictions. If there were contradictions, that would mean one passage is saying something that's not true. If there's a contradiction. And it would cause God to be the author of confusion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So if God gave us the Scriptures, if God can only speak truth, and as a result His Word is truth, then we have to conclude that there are no contradictions in the Scriptures. And so as we interpret the Scriptures, we need to make sure that any interpretation we put on any passage in the Bible harmonizes with the rest of the Bible. I can't pull a a passage out of the Bible and say, okay, this teaches something. It is in contradiction with what other passages in the Bible teach. All of the Scriptures must work together to harmonize. And that's what the 119th Psalm, verse 160 says. The sum of thy word is truth. When I take God's word and I put all that it says about any subject together, that is truth. And I can't take an interpretation again that forces a contradiction with any other passage in the scriptures. That's fundamental. As we interpret the Bible, as we study it together and as we study it apart, we need to make sure that we understand that there can't be any contradictions. As I look at a passage... And if I take as I want to interpret what it means, I've got to make sure that that fits with the rest of the Bible. Tonight I want to use Acts chapter 10 to answer, answer a couple of common questions, and these questions are not in any way related other than the fact that Acts chapter 10 helps us to answer these questions. And uh, I thought it would be good since we are in Acts chapter 10 this morning in our Bible class to look at a couple of these tonight. The first question is, and you may have heard this, if Jesus was crucified on Friday and rose on Saturday on Sunday, how could it be said that he was in the grave three days and three nights? Jesus was crucified on Friday. If he rose on Sunday, how could it be said that he was in the grave for three days and three nights? Because you will remember that Jesus prophesied and promised that he would be in the grave three nights. In Matthew chapter 12, Verse 40, notice what Jesus says. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to be in the grave for three days and three nights, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. That was Jesus' prophecy and His promise. We need to look at that then. Because we have a potential problem. First off, it's clear from the Scriptures that Jesus was crucified on Friday. We know that from the Scriptures. The question isn't how long was Jesus in the grave or when was Jesus dying, when did He raise? We know those uh, things, but we have to harmonize that with what Jesus said about being three days and three nights in the grave. John 19, beginning of verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And bowing His head, He gave up His spirit Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Jesus was crucified on Friday, and they didn't want Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering on the Sabbath day. They wanted to hasten that process. And so they go to Pilate and say, hey, listen, let's finish off Jesus and these two thieves So they're not hanging on the cross on Saturday, the next day. And so you'll remember they went and they broke the two legs of the thieves. Jesus, to their surprise, was already dead. And they stuck him through the side with a spear and blood and water ran out. You remember that story. But the reason why they wanted to hasten the death was because they wanted to get those bodies off of the cross before the Sabbath day. And we know the Sabbath day was a Saturday. And so this is the day before the Sabbath day. Therefore, this is Friday. Jesus was crucified on Friday. That's not in dispute. That's clear from the Scriptures. What else is clear is that it was sometime after 3 p.m. We get this from Matthew chapter 27, beginning of verse 45. Matthew chapter 27, beginning of verse 45. We get not only that it was on a Friday, but that it was sometime in the afternoon, sometime after 3 o'clock. Now, from the 6th hour until the ninth hour, you remember this, the, the, the way that time was kept was by the hours of the day. So at sunrise would be zero, and then every hour thereafter would be another hour. And so the 6th hour of the day would be sometime around noon. Around the 6th hour until the ninth hour, which would be about 3 hours later, or 3 o'clock, 3 after noon. Uh, after that, until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. It was sometime around after the ninth hour. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus is crying out. And shortly thereafter, he's dying. So it was sometime after 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon when Jesus was crucified and when he died. And we know from Scripture, again, there's no controversy here, that Jesus rose on Sunday morning, early on Sunday morning. In John chapter 20, in John chapter 20, verse 1, notice this account of Jesus' resurrection. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She went on the first day of the week and says that it was still early, still before sunrise. So sometime on Sunday, sometime very early on Sunday morning, Jesus was risen from the dead. So Jesus said that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. And yet we know from Scripture that he, was, he died sometime on Friday afternoon after 3 p.m., They take the body, you remember Joseph takes the body, lays it in a tomb, and they have to do a little bit of preparation, they don't do all the preparation, that's one of the reasons why the women are coming back after the Sabbath day to do the, the official preparations of the body, but they lay him in the tomb on Friday afternoon, and then by Sunday morning he is arisen, not very long, yet Jesus said it would be three days and three nights, and the question is, how could that be? Well, let's look at the timeline here. Again, Jesus said three days and three nights he would be in the heart of the earth. We know that he died Friday after 3 p.m. He was in the tomb then, and he rose on Sunday morning very early. And so he was in the tomb then. Friday, whatever part of the afternoon was left, Friday night, Saturday, and Saturday night, and by Sunday morning, he's out of the tomb. It's a short amount of time. If you do the math, it's somewhere less than 40 hours that he's in the tomb. Not 72, but somewhere around 40 hours that he was in the tomb. Yet he said he'd be in the tomb for three days and three nights. I can get two nights out of that if I try. I can get Friday night and Saturday night. I can get three nights. And I can get two days out of that maybe if I'm generous about how I call Friday a day. I can definitely get a day out of Saturday. Yeah, Jesus said it would be three days and three nights. How do we harmonize this? Again, if the scriptures are truth, if they're inspired by God, they have to be in harmony. We can't have it say three days and three nights one place, and it'd actually be two days and two nights in another. So how do we harmonize this? H. Leo Bowles, in his commentary, says this about the language that is used. He says, The Jews had no word corresponding to our natural day of 24 hours or from midnight to midnight. Their meaning was expressed by a word meaning a night day. And to this they added the custom of saying night and day, for what we mean by a natural day or a revolution of the earth. Hence, to express the time of a part of three consecutive days, they were obliged to say three night days or Three days and nights. So Bowles is saying there was no word to express this idea of of a a 24-hour period. They would just reference any part of a day as a day-night or a night and a day. That goes along with what Albert Barnes says in his New Testament commentary. He says, It will be seen in the account of the resurrection of Christ that he was in the grave but two nights and a part of three days. See Matthew 28, verse 6. The computation is, however, strictly in accordance with the Jewish mode of reckoning. Again, this idea that any part of a day, they refer to it as a night and a day, as any part of a day. He goes on, if it had not been, the Jews would have understood it and would have charged our Savior as being a false prophet, for it was well known to them that he had spoken this prophecy. Matthew chapter 27, verse 63. Such a charge, however, was never made, and it is plain, therefore, that it was meant by the prediction, uh, uh, meant by the prediction, was a comp- what was meant by the prediction day was to be received a maxim also among the Jews in computing time that a part of a day was to be received as the whole. Many instances of this kind occur both in both sacred and profane history. He says, listen, these people knew what Jesus was proclaiming what Jesus was prophesying. They knew that he, what he was prophesying because we learned that from Matthew chapter 27, verse 63. Here's what it says. As they went to Pilate, they said, Sir, we remember that the deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. They said, Jesus said he's going to rise again after three days. And what Barnes is saying is if he didn't do that, they would immediately have called foul. But they knew and they understood what Jesus meant, because the Jews kept time this way, that any part of a day was considered a day, or a night and a day, as their language would have required it to be. This is what commentators say about this, but we don't have to rely solely on commentators. We can see many examples of this in our Bibles, of how they kept time by any part of the beginning and ending, being included in the whole. For instance, in 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. In 1 Kings chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, reigned uh, Abijam over Judah, three years reigned he in Jerusalem. So, uh, Jeroboam is uh, <coughs> uh, he's a king in his 18th year being king over Israel. Abijam becomes king over Judah. And it says he reigns for three years. Now we drop down in First Kings to verse uh, fifteen to get verse eight. In First Kings, beginning verse eight, First Kings fifteen, beginning verse eight, and Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his stead. And in the twentieth year of Jeroboam king of Israel reigned Asa over Judah. Well, here's some more details, aren't there? This Abijam slept with his father, and this occurred in the 20th year of Jeroboam. So he started reigning in the 18th. In the 20th year, he's gone, and the new king is in his place. Well, it's been a long time since I did simple math, but 20 years, the 20th year of his reign, minus the 18th year of his reign is only two years, isn't it? But notice what it says about how long he reigned. He reigned three years going along with this Jewish method of keeping time where any part of a day or any part of a year was included in the, in the sum as being the year. So 18, 19, 20, three years in their mode of ca- computation, two years in the way we might calculate that. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 3. First Kings chapter 12, verse 3. Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spoke unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous, now therefore make, our, uh, uh, make, make you the grievous, sir, uh, sorry, thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which you put upon us lighter, and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days, then come again to me, and the people departed. He said, Get out of here. Go away for, for three days. Let me think about this. Verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. So he said, Go away for three days. Well, they go away, but on the third day they come to him. Well, it hadn't been three days yet, had it only been two at that point. But on the third day they come, and that corresponds with this Jewish method of timekeeping where any part of a day was included in the sum, in the whole. They went away for just a little over two days, but it says they had gone away for three days. And then in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 16, Esther's about to go before the king, and she knows that if she goes to the king and he hasn't bid her to come to see him, and he's not happy with her, that he could uh, have her executed, and she's nervous about that. And so she says in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day, I also and my maidens will fast likewise and so will I go into the king which is not according to the law and if I perish I perish. She's going to go in to petition for the well-being of the Jews and she says she realizes that it is her obligation to do so but that it might cost her her life and she says if I perish I perish I'm going to do what I have to do but she asked them to fast for three days. Well we see in Esther chapter 5, verse 1, it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. On that third day she went in. She did, They didn't fast for three whole days. It would have been the fourth. Any part of, the, of a day was included in the day. And then all of this brings us to Acts chapter 10, to the story of Cornelius, perhaps the most conclusive evidence of this method of timekeeping that we can see very clearly from Acts chapter 10 in the passage that we looked at earlier. In our Bible class, what Joseph read for us uh, as we began tonight. In Acts chapter 10, if you've got your Bibles there, you might open them. Start reading with me in verse 3. In Acts chapter 10, verse 3, Cornelius is praying, and about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius... Now, we don't know what day of the week this was, but we do know that it was the ninth hour. Remember, the ninth hour would have been three hours after high noon, so three o'clock in the afternoon. For purposes of our discussion tonight and to help us visualize this, let's just assume that this was Monday afternoon at three o'clock, okay? We don't know what day it was, but we're going we're to base our time off of this starting point. And so it was someday after about three o'clock, So we're going to call it uh, Monday at 3 p.m. Drop down to verse 9. So he says, go find Cornelius. In verse 9, he sends them on their way. Uh, Verse 8, so when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Verse 9, the next day, or on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So he sends them on their way. The next day, they're getting to Joppa to find Peter, and it is about the sixth hour. So if we said it was Monday at 3 when he got, saw the vision, the next day would have been Tuesday, and now it would have been noon. Okay? All right, drop now down to verse 23. Peter then, as, he, as, they, as they find Peter, they tell him what they need him to do. He calls them in, verse 23, then he invited them in and lodged them On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So this is the next day. No reference to what time of day it was, but they lodge overnight on Tuesday night. If it it was on Monday when this all started, we leave on hypothetical discussion. On Wednesday morning, then they would leave. On the morrow, they left. That would be Wednesday. And then in verse 24, they're going to make it back to Caesarea. Verse 24, And the following day they entered Caesarea, Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. This was the next day. All right, so we uh, know that would be on a Thursday. All right, now notice what he says in verse 30. So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. He says, it was this time four days ago. We said that this started, if it started on Monday, this would be now Thursday at the same time. That would be exactly three days, wouldn't it? If you're counting the hours, that'd be 72 hours. Monday to Tuesday at 3 p.m. would be 24 hours. Tuesday at 3 p.m. to Wednesday at 3 p.m. would be 48 hours. Wednesday at 3 p.m. to Thursday at 3 p.m. would be 72 hours. 72 divided by 24 would be three days. And yet Cornelius says, it was four days ago when I saw this vision. Because the Jews would have calculated in that time any part of a day as being a day. And that is what he said. He says, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And so we see this method of timekeeping, that this corresponds then with this idea that Jesus said he'd be in the grave three nights and three days. It was part of three nights and three days. Back to our timeline. He was in the grave on Saturday. He was in the grave on Sunday. Whoops. He was in the grave three days and three nights according to their language and their method of timekeeping. Remember, there was no uh, way to express just a part of a day. Any part of a day was a night and a day or a night day. And so this harmonizes with Jesus' prophecy that he'd be in the grave three days and three nights. I hope that helps. I hope that helps you understand uh, the way that we can explain what potentially could be considered a contradiction. There's no contradiction here. This all lines up with the way language is used in the Bible as well as what uh, we know from secular history. And then to the second question tonight. Again, these are not related at all other than the fact that we can use Acts chapter 10 to help come up with the answers. And I purposely tried to dodge this question in our class tonight, this morning because I wanted to talk about it tonight. And the question is, if God doesn't hear sinners' prayers, why did he hear Cornelius' prayer? It's an interesting question, isn't it? If God doesn't hear sinners' prayers, why did he hear Cornelius' prayer? First off, we have to establish the fact that God did hear Cornelius' prayer. Acts chapter 10 is very clear about that. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 4. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. His prayers were a memorial. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 31, it's even more descriptive and more definitive when Cornelius recites this. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So, uh, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Acts chapter 10, verse 31 explicitly says, God heard Cornelius' prayer. Now, that's very hard to deny. What else is hard to deny is that God doesn't hear sinners' prayers. The scriptures are very clear about that. Look over in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Someone who's not living right with God his prayer is an abomination. That's pretty clear. And then we get over in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 12. Notice 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, it's very clear, isn't it? If you're not living right, don't expect God to hear your prayers. And yet we talk to people in the world who may have been in a scary situation. Maybe, uh, maybe they were in an airplane that's, the, mo- the engine's going out, and what do they say? Well, I was praying for all I'm worth. They hadn't thought about God for 60 forevers before then, but now the engine starts to sputter a little bit, and they start praying. Or they get a cancer diagnosis, and and uh, they say, I've been praying for all I'm worth. Well, they, they wouldn't have, had, have prayed forever, but now they're interested in that. The Bible tells us those prayers don't get past the ceiling if we're not living like we should. And so it's very clear. God heard Cornelius' prayer. God doesn't hear sinners' prayers. And yet, Cornelius was told there was something he needed to do, and he needed to go get the preacher to tell him what that was. So how do we reconcile these apparent contradictions. Again, there is no contradiction, so how do we harmonize this? I'll tell you, there's at least two possible explanations. One of those is that God hears the prayers of those who are searching for the truth. That's one way that it's been explained in the past. Well, God doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. Maybe you're praying for good health or for rain or whatever it may be. God doesn't necessarily hear those prayers if you're a sinner but he would hear the prayer of someone searching for the truth. And they might point us to passages like Proverbs 28, verse 9, to su- support that idea that we just looked at, one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That is, so if you're searching, then perhaps God would hear that prayer. That's one explanation that is offered, potentially. I don't necessarily see there's any contradiction that would force. But I, there's another explanation that I think is probably stronger and more likely, and that is that Cornelius was a Gentile in good standing prior to the gospel being made available to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. We know this for a couple of reasons. First off, God dealt with Gentiles in the Old Testament and he had expectations for them. We can read about numerous uh, interactions with Gentiles in the Old Testament and God had expectations for them the book of Amos has several. Here's one in Amos chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Gilead, or Damascus is said to have transgressed. Damascus was a Gentile nation. In Amos chapter 1, verse 11, Edom is referenced here as being transgressors. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, And for four I will not turn away his punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Edom, this was not a Jewish nation, obviously. These weren't the Israelites. And God says they were transgressors. God had had some expectations for Gentiles in the Old Testament. And in the book of Jonah, here's a, a very... Uh, a very dramatic uh, uh, account of God dealing with the Gentiles in Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, the city of the Assyrians, the big bad nation of the Assyrians. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three-day journey in extent to walk from one side of it. Apparently it was so big, it would take you three days to walk from one side of it to the other. A three-day journey in extent. Huge. And it was a Gentile city and a wicked city. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So all, So the people of Nineveh believed God. Proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he uh, caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to his God. Who can tell? Uh, mightily uh, to God, yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The city of Nineveh was wicked. And Jonah's message to them was, you got 40 days, and you're going down. And what did they do? They repented. They knew what God's expectation for them was, and they repented. That tells me that God had rules for the Gentiles. God had not completely forsaken the Gentiles and had given them no instruction. No, God had rules for them. In 1 John 3, verse 4, Whosoever committed, committed sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. These Gentiles were noted as being sinful. You can't be sinful unless there's a law, because sin is a transgression of the law. So therefore, we can conclude the Gentiles had a law that God expected them to live by. It was different than the law of Moses. But there was an expectation from them. In Romans chapter 4, verse 15, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Again, you can't be a transgressor unless there's some rules to play by. And the Gentiles had rules. We don't have them recorded for us in the Bible. We're, expectations. we're not God's chosen people that we focus on throughout history. Yet there were expectations and rules for them to live by. Otherwise, they couldn't be transgressors. And so we would conclude then... That Cornelius was living faithfully to God when he prayed, and that allows us to harmonize this idea that God doesn't hear those who are rebellious and turned against Him. Cornelius was striving to be the person that God would have him to be, and isn't that the description we read about Cornelius in Acts chapter ten? In Acts chapter ten, beginning in verse one, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of that of what is called the Italian regiment. Verse 2, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. This is a man who was trying to live faithfully to God. He had sin. He needed to have that sin uh, remitted through the blood of Christ. He needed to hear that message. But until Acts chapter 10, the saving uh, grace through Christ was not available to the Gentile yet. It is about to be. That door is about to be opened. And Cornelius is going to be amenable to the law of Christ at that point. But up until this point, I believe he was being faithful to God as a Gentile. And when, God, when he prayed to God, God heard his prayer. Two random questions only connected by the fact that we can look to Acts chapter 10 for some help in answering those questions. And I hope the things we've looked at tonight have been helpful to you. We cannot interpret the Scriptures in any way that forces that Scripture to contradict with another. We have to be able to harmonize any interpretation we make from the Scriptures. And I think we can do that on both of the questions we've looked at tonight. Jesus was in the grave, I believe, because he said, and Cornelius' prayer was heard, I believe, because Cornelius was being faithful to God when he prayed that prayer. If you have any questions about that or you'd like to discuss that with me further, please let me know. I'd love to talk with you about it. It gets down to us this morning, or tonight, are we following the example of Cornelius? Cornelius was a devout man, committed to living for God in every aspect of his life. Are we devout like that? Are we committed to living for God in every aspect of our life? If we're not, we need to make a correction, and there's no better time than right now to make that correction. If there's anything we can do to help, let us know while we stand and sing.